Good to see you guys. I'm Jamie. I'm one of the pastors here at Summit Crossing. Just want to welcome you here. If this is your first time, glad you're here. Absolutely. Um, want to know, we uh, quick, quick kind of follow up on that announcement. The Bible classes, um, kind of how to, how to come to the Bible. If you don't know anything about the Bible, this will be great. And if you think you know everything about the Bible, this is still going to be fantastic. Because what we want to do is go from, hey, I listen to the preacher and he puts the cookies on the low shelf. We want to get away from that mentality and say, you know where gold is? Gold is deep in the mine. And so we want to learn how to, to mine into the shaft and get down there and find the gold or the treasure and dig it out so that you're not just going, well, pastor said this. I'm like, that's great. That's a wonderful starting place. Go find out for yourself and make sure that's what's in the Word. And so that's what this class is going to do. We're going to know where the Bible came from. How, how did it get to come to be the Bible? And how do I study the Bible? And it's just going to hopefully whet your appetite to really dive into God's Word. I don't want you to miss that. Um, I was gone last week, um, and I was in Charlotte this week, got in yesterday from a pastor's assessment conference for Acts 29, just to let you know, kind of, hey, how are we helping plant churches? Uh, we assessed for about three solid days, pastors and their wives. We looked at um, kind of in detail um, their spiritual vitality, how's their marriage, how's your marriage doing, how is, uh, do you know the demographics of the area that you're going to plant in, are you theologically, is, is there theological clarity, do you understand how to articulate your position, your mission, your vision, your values, all this stuff, and it was fantastic. There are some amazing godly men and women that are planting churches, and I get to do that maybe two or three times a year. Um, so I just want to keep you up on the fact that this is one of the small ways that we're part of planting churches. We want to plant one day out of here, but until then we resource, we come alongside and we, uh, empower others to plant churches. So we're going through the book. Actually, we're not going through the book. I hope to do that one day. We're going through the, the seven churches in the book of Revelation. We're in chapter three right now. We're in our, uh, fourth or fifth church. I can't remember. Thyatira was last week. Dave did an awesome job. I listened to all of that and I thought, I'm just going to leave him up here. <laughs> it was fantastic. Um, remember, Revelation is a different kind of book, right? It's apocalyptic. It's kind of a, uh, it's, it's not a, a code, right? It's not a code map to figure out when the end of the world is or what's going to happen at the end of the world. If it was, and it was given to the people it was given to, I don't think it would have been very helpful. Right? So I'm like, well, that may not be what it's for. Oh, ding, ding, ding. It's not. It was written to bring encouragement and challenge to those who are walking through intense difficulty, suffering, and persecution. That's what Revelation was written for. So let's demystify that just a little bit. It was written for the people it was written to, not so that we could have big old maps on the stage and figure out when it's coming, right? That's not what it was written for. So I want you to keep that in mind because I want to follow that with this expression. I don't know if your, your grandma or if you had a grandma, you know, ever used this expression. You can't see the forest for the trees. You know that expression? I'm looking for a yes, no. If you're, okay, good. Yeah, you're with me. I'm just not up here by myself. Okay, good. All right. So I can't see the forest for the trees. My, my, my grandmother would, you know, say things like, you know, and y'all ask me, how you doing, Jamie? And I always, I usually respond with fair to Midland which is a grade of cotton, which makes me think of her, and she raised me, so I love her. So I always say that. But can't see the forest for the trees. Think, think of Revelation, the book, like the forest. And the, the little, the, each church or chapter, as we, as, if we get to go farther later, is a tree. And so we look at the tree, but it has to be in relation to the forest or you get lost and, and you forget. What, what does this mean in the big picture? Because Revelation provides a filter 
for how we read into Sardis today. All right, so I want you to, to remember, keep that in mind. We'll come back to that because I want to spend the last part of our sermon just really focusing on that. I think it's really important we learn how to think like that. So Jesus in Revelation, because it's written to a persecuted people, or those that are avoiding persecution, that should be walking through persecution. We see Jesus in chapter 1 starting as he is exalted, he is glorified, right? He is a sovereign king who holds the churches like stars in his hands. And we see him uh, great and glorious and powerful and majestic, which is exactly what people walking through difficulty, trials, and suffering need to see. They need to know that. And so that's what Revelation kind of unfolds for us. Here is the end. Here is how things are going to go. Therefore, live bravely and courageously now. If you've seen a kind of an opening picture of a Christmas tree, think of the Christmas tree, right? When we think about Sardis. And when you look at a tree and it's got lights all over it and it's got ornaments all over it and it's sitting in water and it's, it's very busy and maybe there's some popcorn going around it. Is that Christmas tree alive or dead? You can answer. It's okay. Alive, dead, alive. I'm not really sure. On the molecular level, on the, on the cell level, it might still have some biological movement still going up of the, the phloem and the, you know, all the, all the stuff. Of, uh, you leave it alone long enough, it's pretty much dead for sure. It may be dead immediately because it's cut off from the source of life. You know, I don't know. Sardis is kind of like a Christmas tree. And so keep that in your mind. We're, we're going to go back to that, right? It's, is it alive? Is it dead? Jesus says it's dead. It, lo- it looks alive. I- I'm confused. Welcome to Sardis. That's where we are. The church looks alive, but it's not. And the church in Sardis has somehow avoided the persecution that we found in Smyrna, that we are seeing that is coming on these other churches that we will see in Philadelphia. And now it's either from blending in with the culture through uh, the metal and the wood guild shops, the trades, the craftsmen, you know, where when, when you were part of a guild, you had to pay homage to one of the patron gods or, or you had to throw in uh, incense for Caesar in, in some of these towns. And so maybe they're blending in with that. We're not really sure, but they are avoiding persecution and it's not experiencing it very much. And so their hearts in Sardis are set on avoiding hardship and they pursue a life based on Comfort, convenience, and safety. And so Jesus specifically addresses them. Three points today. Number one, indicators of a spiritually dying church. Number two, let's get some good news, indicators of a spiritually vibrant church. And number three, we've got a reason for great hope today. I hope you hear the gospel on the individual level and on the corporate, on the church level as well. We need both to move forward. So let's look at chapter 3, verse 1, and, and we'll start with reading. If you don't have a Bible, just uh, maybe grab one off the floor. Keep that if you don't have one, because um, we're going to be in Revelation a good bit. So be ready to, to turn. We're going to be from like 3, and then 5, and then 6, and then 7. Okay. So to the angel of the church of Sardis write the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Here's what he says. Speaking of Sardis, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Jesus says to Sardis, I know your works. He knows what's happening. Unlike the other churches, he offers no commendation, right? Ephesus, you're standing against false teaching. You hate the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. That's great, but this I have against you. 
Smyrna. You're pressing on through poverty, even though you are rich and in tribulation. That is great. Smyrna, uh, uh, Smyrna, and then Pergamum, right? When I, you've denied the faith unto death. That is great. But this I have against you. Thyatira, Jesus noticed that there exhibited love and faith and service. But this I have against you. Jezebel, you're tolerating too much. But to Sardis, we get nothing. <laughs> he just jumps right in and says, you look, you have the reputation of being alive, but you're dead. Ray Ortland said, we have enough of God to make us look good, but not so much that he takes over. We have enough of God to make us look good, but not so much that he takes over. And so today is a call to look at ourselves, to look at our church, to look at our lives, our individual lives, our families, and say, Jesus, what, what do you see? How do you see us as your church, as your people, as your children? Jesus uses a mixed metaphor. Like in verses 1 and 2, he says, you look alive, but you are dead. And then he follows that with, wake up. Is that interesting? Death and sleep. He's mixing, he's mixing the metaphors, right? And so what we learn from that is he is appealing to true Christians who are spiritually asleep, but functionally dead. Right? That is, Christianity isn't real to them. It's like they're living in a dream and they need to be wakened up, awakened from it. They're living like they used to live when they, before they were Christians. They're living in their own power. They're living according to the world. They're no longer tasting and seeing and trusting in who God is. The world that they live in and answer to is more real than their God. And their lives show that. That's what, that's what we kind of learn. And so Jesus says, wake up. When he says wake up, he is suggesting that they're not non-Christians, that they are not unregenerate. Unregenerate people, how do you, you don't, they need life. They need to go from death to life. Unregenerate dead people need resurrection, right? We, we know that that's the difference. These people are simply in a state of being unconscious. They need to be stirred. Asleep people need to be awakened. And so verse 2 says, wake up and be strengthened. Remain and, uh, What remains and what is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. When you're asleep, reality isn't really reality. It doesn't seem like it. Your dreams seem more real than true reality. Right? It's all about perception. Perception is the only reality at that point. And that's what's happening. Jesus says, wake up. I have two children that tend to sleep, walk, and sleep, talk. And it's kind of fun sometimes because my wife and I will be sitting on the couch watching television after they've gone to bed, and my youngest, my six-year-old, will come in and just stand at the foot of the couch and just look at us. I'm like, well, hey, how are you? Have you? Have you? Have you? Have you? Okay. All right. Well, you know, what are you doing up? All right. Well, just going back to bed. All right. You know, just, and then I'm like, we have this full conversation. That, that's my youngest, you know, and, and Joshua's number two. He, he is, um, the hardest one to wake up right now. And so my job in the morning as dad is to wake up the children. 
I, I, I didn't choose that job, <laughs> but it was uh, delegated to me by my director of activities at the at the home. Um, so, <laughs> so what she says is that. So I'm in there waking up Joshua, right? And then you know he's he is either he dreams like up until it's time to wake up. And so he's dreaming, and eh, you get some of this. And they're like, he's either a Mighty Morphin Power Ranger or a Jedi Knight. At the moment, I'm trying to stir him and wake him up. And so sometimes I'll get a wrong, you know, one, one of those. I'm like, yeah, it's dangerous now because he and Jack, they both sleep on the top bunk. So I'm doing one of these numbers and I'm, I'm too old to even try to care about doing a forklift thing. I don't, I don't even care about that anymore. So I'm kind of dragging him halfway and then I'm throwing water, you know, things like that. His, his world right now is, is in the dream world and his reality is not me pulling on his leg, getting ready for school. When I say something like school, he has some vague understanding that something is happening and he needs to change whatever he's doing, but he's trying to fight things and to win. And I'm waking him for school and I'm interrupting that. And so reality and perceived reality are clashing at that moment. He needs to wake up. See what's going on there? That's that's what's happening in Sardis. They are being controlled by the world they're in, which is the dream world, the non-reality, what you think is reality, but God is reality, and this is a shadow. Now, that's hard to pick up on and understand. So I, you know, get that in your head, that we are in a shadow world compared to, and if you get into Romans and Hebrews and all that, it makes a lot more sense, but just trust me on that one. We don't have time. Let's move forward. The church in Sardis has a reputation in the community for being alive, for doing good. So there's probably a lot of activity, right? There's a lot of things going on, probably a lot of doing good, social justice, a lot of people coming, a lot of excitement, big buildings, lots of programs, people's needs are getting met, and it's not bad. It's good things, but only if they are for and from the gospel, and so we can lose that. There are plenty of people that aren't Christians that do these things. Plenty of churches that don't profess Christ as the only way to heaven and the only way to restore a relationship with God that do these good things. There's a lot of activity, but does it matter? Anybody can draw a crowd with deep pockets and excitement and not have Jesus at the center. Just go to a sports event. Activity isn't bad in itself, but Jesus says in Sardis, it's not complete. The forms are there. The external is there. Ceremonies, religious meetings, traditions, service, worship services, music, up-to-date music, whatever. But the essence is lacking. The heart is missing. Jesus says in front of man, you're alive. But in front of God, you're dead. And that's sobering. And, and most at Sardis have given in to the temptation to avoid persecution. We know that because in verse 4 it says, some have not yet been defiled or polluted their garments. Some. In the last few churches, what we saw was some have been. Some have given into temptation. Now we're seeing some have not. So there's this progression of more of the churches falling into this. They're trying to avoid being ostracized economically because of the, the trade guilds and because, you know, or you're supposed to pay homage to the God and maybe they are. They don't want to be ostracized. They don't want to lose chance of having a job or to find work outside the guilds it is very difficult. They don't want to be called out for paying, uh, having to pay homage to the emperor and getting in trouble or going to jail or, or even being executed. And because they are asleep, they are focused on avoiding persecution and they tend to try to live below the radar and blend in. 
doing enough to appear alive as a church, but missing the heart of the gospel altogether. They've chosen comfort and safety over Jesus. So what does that result in over time? What does that start to look like? Although the community and the media may think you're alive, Tom Rainer is a guy that works with churches in decline. Uh, I read an article by him a while back. It's called Church Autopsy. I thought, what? That caught my attention. I'll read that. And I'm going to summarize his summary. Um, here are some points that he says that he's noticed over the last 10 to 15 years in working with churches that are trying to figure out what to do. He says, here are the characteristics of a dying church. There's no attempt to reach the outside community. There's always an in- inward focus. And what I've noticed and what I've read and been a part of is that the larger churches get, the more internally they have to focus their energy to take care of the members that they have. And, oh, well, so-and-so doesn't like that kind of carpet, or we need this kind of coffee. They don't like this kind of coffee, or these seats aren't cushy enough, or we don't have this, or children's prayer. And so we have to start focusing in and taking care the larger you get. that You have to fight that in a kind way. We don't want to be unkind to people that are here, but we have to realize we have a mission, and we're not the mission. So we have to hear that a lot, right? And so what happens is we, we, everything starts to turn insular and they have this inward focus. There's an overemphasis on memorials. You remember back when and we had this and this, all that stuff. There's this constant reference to the past. There's no passion for the lost or the religiously trapped or even, let's bring it up to date a little bit, even the consumer Christian who just wants to, to go and to blend in and to drink good coffee and to, to feel like they've done okay. We've almost ostracized those people to not come to church because you're not on mission. I'm like, they have sin just like we do. It just looks different. Let's be kind. Let's reach out. Why are you here? Have you been hurt by church? Have you been? Everybody has been. Welcome. <laughs> I'm going to probably be hurt today. Because it's full of people. That's why we have a great Savior and not a great church, right? We have a great church because of a great Savior. We have to get the, the cart and the horse in the right order or things fall apart. He noticed that they rarely prayed together. And when they did, it was still focused on inward things. There's no clarity on why their church exists. That's why we do mission, vision, values. We talk about that, not just every year, but try to lace that in all the time, at least once a month. What's our mission? The mission is what God called us to, is to make disciples that make disciples. The vision, the vision is for God's kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven. So that's what we want pockets of the kingdom to break out. We should be able to articulate that. That's what our vision, that's what our mission is. We need to know why we're here. Otherwise, we just kind of wander in and sing some songs and feel a little better, and then we wander out. And what happens is the church will become unloving, a hard place to fit in, and full of idolatry that are based on things like pastor personalities, on here's how we do things, based on programs, and you miss the heart before you know it, and you're asleep, and you don't even know it. And the reality is gone. And it reminds us of Matthew 21 where Jesus cursed the fig tree. He walks up to the fig tree and the fig tree is supposed to be producing fruit. It's producing leaves. There's a lot of activity on the tree. There's just nothing of value. And Jesus curses the tree. And it's like Ephesus where he, he says, do I remove the lampstand? Because the reality is gone. The heart is gone. The forms are still there. The evidence of what was is still there. But it's hollow. It's a Christ-haunted place. And churches that never stop to ask if they're alive are the ones that are in the most danger. If it never occurs to you, are we following Jesus or 
Do we have a really slick program or do we have some really good leadership development skills? Is that leadership pipeline really chumming along like it should be? We need those things. But those things are to come along and serve us as people, not drive us. And so our prayers are to be vigilant and not follow in the footsteps of the church at Sardis. All right, that's the bad news, point one, right? Let's get some good news in here. So what are some indicators of a spiritually vibrant church? What should that look like? What makes a church alive? What makes you alive? What beats that if it stopped, you would stop? It's your heart, right? The presence of God, that Christianity works from the inside out. That's how Christianity functions. It works from the inside out, not the other way. It's not the external actions, not all the activity proves that we are a Christian. It's that, hey, God has made us into a new creation. Therefore, it fleshes itself out in obedience from joy, not obedience to be accepted by God. But because we are accepted, our obedience flows through and from his power. That's what Christianity is about. It works like that on all levels, not just individually, not just in your family, but on the church level. And if it doesn't, You're going to be Sardis because you can only go so long before you get either angry, bitter, or tired. Those are your options if you're operating without the Spirit of God, right? And so we always ask the question, how long can you live the way that you do if the Holy Spirit were to pull out? Would you notice that? Or can you live without Him just fine? Thank you very much. So we know, no, we must have the heart that beats and that blood is pumping to all of our organs and our, our brain and our toes and our fingers and it bringing nutrients and oxygen, keeping us alive and hearing constantly from Jesus through the Holy Spirit that he is our living water, that he is our living, he is the bread of life and we constantly have to have that. Like we eat three meals a day, I need to constantly hear from him who says, I am your Food, I am your water, right? And not only do we do that individually, as we all do, but we do that corporately on Sundays and when we gather in small groups. We do, that's what that is. Acts 2 is where we've turned since the very beginning of Summit, right? It's to look, here's the foundation. The early church had four focuses. We'll put that on the screen. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayers. We do all of those elements every Sunday morning. Because we find them there. Devoted to the teaching of the word. We've got to know the word. That is the foundation. Otherwise, you're just making subjective calls. You don't know if that's right or not. God's word must lead us and guide us. All right? Devotion to the fellowship or community. It's in our name. It's a really long name, but it's in there, right? Summit Crossing Community Church. It's important that we are in one another's lives, learning to be vulnerable and fighting for that. Devotion to the breaking of bread. We do communion every week. Why? We love it. It reminds us of the cross and of the resurrection and of our lives and what has been restored. And then we're devoted to prayers. And we want to improve on this. This has been one of our goals as, as an elder body for our church. Is we want to pray on Sunday mornings. But we also want to do other, other venues like elder-led prayer. And when we do that, like, well, you know, how did that one go? How do we tweak that? How do we change that? How can we invite more people and, and, and make it easier for people, but at the same time challenge them? How do we, how do we do that? And so we're thinking and praying, God, show us how to do that. We want you to be challenged in prayer in your missional communities, challenged in your prayer in your families and your men as you lead your wives or, or wives. If you don't have husbands, how can we help resource you? How can we be a family to, to push us to Jesus in every microcosm and every cell that's a part of the church 
so that we are all praying individually and praying corporately, that we're moving forward, that there is authentic worship of Jesus, that on Sunday mornings we aren't just coming together singing songs and reading verses and doing the thing, that he is the focus, that he is the point of why we're here, that we declare together that Jesus is worthy of worship, that his name is above all names, that like Revelation says, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And we're like overflowing with that, encouraging one another because you may forget that next week and I will remember it. And so when I say it, hopefully you look at me and go, oh, I'm glad he believes it because I don't this week. I need to believe that. And then I'm going to be that guy next week where I need, thank you. I'm glad somebody's still believing. I need somebody to walk along And we come together and encourage one another. Jesus, your name is above all names and you have full allegiance from us. That's why we come together. We declare you're our food. You're our water. You're our king. You're our greater older brother. You are what we need. Not just me, but we. Churches that are alive wrestle with being alive. They ask the question, are we alive? They recognize that life is hard and full of difficulty and suffering and persecution, but they also know that God is good. And so we learn to be transparent and vulnerable with one another. And it takes work so that we can take the mask off. It doesn't just happen in the, well, give me six months, or it doesn't just happen when you come into a group and you get upset with somebody or they don't do something you like, or you feel kind of pushed to the side and you go, well, you know, we don't have enough in common or we have different personality conflicts or, you know, it just didn't work. That's not Christianity. That's not two people that have the Holy Spirit of them that is working toward love, that is learning to bear with one another in all things, work for peace with one another in all things. Not one that says John 13, 34, 35, where it's talking about, hey, they're going to know that we're his disciples by the love that we have for one another. It doesn't say, you know what? I didn't really like the way they treated me. I'm out. That's, that's not Christianity. And we talk like it is and we think that it is. Christianity comes up, hits that wall and says, how do I love you? How do I, how am I others centered? How do I take the love that God showed for me and show that to you? I don't even like you right now, but I know that I'm called to. So God must give me love for you or I will continue to feel the same way that I do about you in the future. And I know that I can't. He's called me to forgive. He's called me to love. He's called me to do things that I can't do without him. Bingo. Christianity, you're right there. That's where it is. That's not to shame us. That's not to push us down and say, you're a terrible Christian. It's to say, you've got to go to the right source. You've got to realize what you're called to and then realize the sources and resources you've been given. And we turn there together. And yes, it takes time and it takes effort and it takes courage. And you'll walk through failure. But it's not failure. Failure is not sin. It's not. I'd rather fail trying to follow Jesus and give up any day. So churches that are alive serve one another also because Jesus came not to be served, but to serve. So that happens on Sunday morning from greeting, opening the door, having somebody find a, a parking place in this lot. There's nothing but mud over here. You know, I'm like, oh, just, you know, Paul Heck running around. Hey, come over here, come over here, park. Changing diapers, hanging out with three-year-olds on a, a women's Bible study night. It, we serve one another because we love Jesus and we love each other. And it comes out from cutting the grass to one MC serving another so that one missional community group can throw a block party in their neighborhood, put up the jumpy houses, and invite people to it. And one one missional community will say, you know what, let's make the hot dogs run the jumpy house, and we'll do all the serving so that you can just meet your neighbors. 
You meet your neighbors, and we'll serve you so that you can serve them, so that you can say, hey, we're blessed to be a blessing. We like Abraham. We like the Bible. Jesus is really great. He, he pursued us even when we didn't deserve to be pursued, and that's what we're doing for your neighborhood. Here's a jumpy house. Here's some cotton candy. Here's some popcorn. We like Jesus. Don't come to our church. Wait, wait. No, it's not that you don't want to come to our church, but it's not about our church. It's about the kingdom. We don't come, care if you ever come to our church. I want you to know about Jesus. I want you to go somewhere. I want you to know him. I want you to be changed. And we're called to be a city on a hill distinct from the world. We long for our neighbors to see this Jesus that we have seen. We long for our neighbors to see this Jesus that we have seen the way that we have seen him. Not the way that he is presented. Not the way that he gets press in the media. Not for the, the churches that fall on their faces and they have no Jesus there and say, oh, I know that Jesus. No, 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 you don't. You don't know him like the way that we do. Not the way the Bible presents that. He changes lives. I shouldn't be here. We shouldn't. And through his grace and mercy and love that he pours out on us, he is so good and so kind that we have a burden for those that are in our family that don't believe, for those that are at work or at school or in our neighborhood, that, that are right down the street or across the globe while we go to India, while we go to Nepal, while we go where we go, that our hearts go out to them, that we know that without Jesus they have no lasting true hope like we do. Who are we to hold on to that? Finally, number three, we have a great hope. <laughs> it is a tremendously great hope. Because what you could do is you could look at Sardis and go, I don't want to tell anybody, but I think I'm kind of like that. Nobody will know, but you will. And it works like that on church levels, on corporate levels, on congregation levels. And we get so good at putting on a mask and doing what we think is expected that we lose our courage and we lose our hope that anything can change. And Jesus says it can. Christianity says that it can. And we have a great hope to not be like Sardis, who was avoiding persecution by falling asleep. They were not being faithful to Jesus because they were in a dreamlike state and they weren't seeing true reality. It's not about, hey, you're not being persecuted, go get persecuted. That, that's missing the point. You're missing reality. And so Jesus says simply to a dead church, wake up. Strengthen what remains that's about to die. Remember what you received and what you heard. Keep it. Repent. Turn away from that. Turn back to me. Look what happens if we repent in verse 5. It says, the one who conquers, this is a result of repenting, of changing our mind, of stopping what we're doing that runs away from God and moving back toward God, whether that's individual or whether that's a church. It says, the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments. And I will never block his name out of the book of life. And I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. Which is kind of Matthew 10, 32, where Jesus says, If you confess me before men, I'll confess you before my father. But if you do not confess me before men, I will not confess you before men. You know, that's that. This is where it's coming full circle. And this is the time where that's happening. And so we get three things. A white garment, our name not erased, and Jesus confessing our name in front of his father. And I've been studying the whole book of Revelation uh, just for these, these three chapters lately. And I've been basically swallowed by it. <laughs> I mean, it is absolutely fantastic. I've been scared of it almost my whole life. But I am loving every bit of it right now. And, and, and some of it still scares me, and some of it I don't understand, and some of it just drives me to, to tears. I was just talking to my wife last night. I was like, and this part happens here. I start tearing up talking about the story and I'm just 
reciting a verse. It's weird. But it's powerful. And so, of course, these white garments that are handed out, right? They, they represent purity. They represent holiness. But they also represent the fact that there's this overcoming aspect, this victorious conquering. Uh, the language is conquering in each of the churches. It's he who conquers does this. He who overcomes does this. And I'm like, well, we don't talk about that a whole lot. We got to do more. We got to do better at that, right? Yes, you know, we see this, this, oh, here's the tree. Sardis is the tree in relation to the forest, okay? I want to try to paint real quickly the backdrop or the, the background of, of the forest for this tree of Sardis. Overcoming and conquering in the book of Revelation is faithfulness to Jesus. It's, it's not being overcome by culture, but it's being faithful to Jesus. Verse 4 says, they walk with me in white, for they are worthy. That is, they're, they're willing to follow Jesus. Jesus is the only one that's worthy. It's not like we're worthy because we're the best Christians and following him. You gotta read the rest of that. You gotta keep, keep going that, that we follow him. And what we learn is that he who endured suffering unto death. That see, the idea of overcoming and conquering in the book of Revelation is an upside down kingdom thing. When you think of overcoming and conquering, if you think of football, you think, man, we just laid that team to waste. We beat them into the ground. We beat them 70 to nothing. We killed them. If you think of war and battle, you think we just, you know, our, our arrows and our slingshots and our catapults and our, our spears, we just slaughtered the entire enemy. That's what conquering looks like. And you get to Revelation. And it gears up for that war. And then we see how we conquer is following Jesus. And we see how Jesus conquered. And then we see that we are to conquer in the same way. And remember, this letter of Revelation is written to a persecuted church. They're outnumbered. They're outgunned. They're, they're you know, Hamilton, whatever. They're just under the, the governments on top of them. They're being killed. They're being persecuted. And so here we're talking about, you're going to conquer. You're going to overcome. How? How is this encouraging to me? Here is how it's encouraging. The church will suffer because Jesus suffered. Not because the enemy is greater or badder than we are. We're promised that. I'm not going to pull any punches. And the idea is not backing down from the world, not backing down from the guilds, not backing down from emperor worship, not being, not worried about being ostracized financially, but trusting in Jesus and therefore suffering because Jesus who suffered and overcame, that's how he defeated his enemies. Now that's upside down. That does not make any sense to us. He defeated his enemies through suffering, through dying, through laying down his life, through serving them. While they mocked him, while they made fun of him, and while they exerted power over him. Could he have beaten them militarily? Sure. Absolutely. Like that. But in how he wins, he displays his character. And that's for all of time. And for all the cosmos and the universe and the angels and the elders and the four living creatures to go, holy, holy, holy. Nobody saw that coming. That's worthy of worship. 
I want you to see this spelled out real quickly. I'm going to move. So turn to Leviticus, uh, Leviticus, sorry, Revelation 5, verses, we'll just do 2 through 6. I'm just going to read this and move on. And I saw, this is, this is why we follow Jesus unto death and with joy and are able to face persecution and we don't have to fear it and run away from it and try to fit in. Okay, this is why. How, how did, this is how Jesus defeats his enemies. So, and I saw, there's Revelation 5, verse 2 through 6. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. The scroll is the plan of God. It's what's going to happen. And when it opens, it's when the end is going to come and when Jesus is going to come back, right? So that everybody's longing for that. That's why we see in verse 4, And I began to weep loudly because there was no one found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of Judah, the root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and the seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. All right, you got, here's what's crucial. Follow me here. This is, this is how Jesus defeats his enemies. John heard at first. What did he hear? He heard. The line of tribe of Ju- uh, the, the line of the tribe of Judah and the root of David has conquered, and so what they, we think automatically with what he hears is what Israel would hear was finally the Davidic king is coming back. We're going to restore Israel the way it was. The military ruler is coming. Finally, it didn't happen when Jesus came the first time, but it's coming. He's bringing it back now and say, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. That's what he heard. Are we conquering, or is he conquering like David did? Is he going to slay his enemies, or? Is it like what he saw? Because what he heard and what he saw effectively are the same thing. Now look at what he heard. Lion of the tribe of Judah, conquering warrior, root of David. Yes, he is. How does that happen? What did he see? I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. That's what he saw. Heard one thing, saw another, same thing. Over all time. Think about that. A military leader capable of establishing the new kingdom through defeating his enemies through war is what they expected and what they get is a slain lamb. Jesus defeats his enemies by dying for them. It doesn't make any sense. It's the mystery of the gospel. It's upside down thinking. And it is incredibly encouraging to a suffering church to persevere as you continue to see your brothers and sisters slain. You're not going to beat them in an army. Jesus will. Jesus has. And now you get to see it unfold. Let's keep going. Let's see this. Let's see a little bit of a picture of the white robes and the conquering in in Revelation 6, verses 9 through 11. Let's read that. And I saw under the altar, this is John seeing another vision. I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and the witness that they had borne. And they had cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? They're like, we want justice. And then they were given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. The sufferings of Jesus are being filled. This is heavy teaching if this is your first time, right? You see the white robe? You think those people in Sardis aren't going, white robe. That's what he's talking about. How did they get that? They were persecuted. They were killed. They were not afraid. Can you imagine hearing that as a suffering church? 
Not, hey, you know, if you believe and claim it, name it, claim it, and you will be free. You'll be set free. Just believe it. Not going to happen. Doesn't preach in Bangladesh. Doesn't preach in Nepal. You will die. Finally, in Revelation 7, 4 through 8, listen to what John hears again and then what he sees. What we're going to do is, in, in, in verse 4, what this is setting up is kind of like in the book of Numbers. It's a census for war. Let's count off everybody. Let's get ready for war. How many of the tribes are ready? Who's going to go up? Judah will go up. Let's go lay slaughter to this land and claim it for the Lord. Right? That, that's what this is kind of setting up. And so verse 4 in, in chapter 7 says, And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000, sealed from every tribe across the sons of Israel. And so here's the count off of 12,000 from every tribe, all the 12 tribes. And so we're prepared for battle. They're all out in the field. That's what he hears. Military victory is about to happen, just like it used to. Here's what he sees. Verse 9, next verse. And a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. And then one of the elders addressed me, that's John, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes? And where have they come? From where have they come? And I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white. The blood of the lamb. Jesus procures the victory. And here's your robe. Thanks for fighting. How did I fight? Same way Jesus did when he was on earth. You laid down your life. Nobody's asking you to go win a war. But you win a war. Jesus won the war. And Jesus' army doesn't conquer through brute strength. In fact, it's just the opposite. And we see from Revelation 6 that they conquered the same way Jesus did, by dying for their enemies, by laying down their lives. This is the Jesus we follow. And what Jesus did in laying down his life is the same way his army for every nation and tribe and people and language conquer their enemies by laying down our lives. And that's why we go to the nations. And that's why we are not afraid of persecution. This is why we go. And so people in verse 14 are from the tribulation. And the robes are made white, not because they kept themselves pure, but because they were washed with the blood of the Lamb. We got to we got to catch that. They didn't keep themselves pure because they were awesome people. They were washed. Outside action on us, nothing from us, all outside given to us as a gift. And Jesus made them worthy. Jesus gave them clothes, just like in the garden. Here's your clothes. Here's your garment. Let's do that again. Let's finally this is the last time. This one's going to fit. And simply followed him. And so men and women, this is how we weather storms. We look at, oh, that's how it's going to go. And so I have I have courage and bravery to walk into persecution and not to try to figure out how in the world can I sidestep it. But we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, not around it, under it. You walk through it. 
And that's not just for the end times. That's for this afternoon. That's for your marriage that's broken. That's for your dysfunctional family. That's for your kids that will not listen to you. That's for your wife that hates you or you're having trouble loving your wife. That is for a boss that you can't stand. It's for cancer. It is for your house and being in financial ruin. It is for everything that comes against you, but not only for you. It is for the church and for the world to bring restoration on the micro and the macro. And so you're thinking, maybe you're sitting there, I can't live like that. I'm going to give in to my pressure at my job. I'm going to give in to social pressure at school. I'm not going to be faithful. I say, you're right, left to yourself. And your enemies are going to attack. What are you going to do? Attack them back? You're going to learn enough verses to spiritually zora them up so that you can show them who's boss? Is that what Jesus did? No, he laid down his life. He served, he died for. This is the picture that we're given. So maybe you know that there's a deadness in you. Maybe there's a deadness in our church. We say, help, help Lord Jesus. I can't live like this. I can't live up to the standard of looking like an alive church. Great. Neither can Christians live up to what an alive Christian looks like. Same thing. Just more of us that come together. That's what makes it different. The same, the heart is the same. You are hopeless. You're dead and, or you're asleep. And guess what? It doesn't really matter. We need to follow Christ. Are we a Christmas tree? I'm not sure. Here's the gospel. Admit you're a sinner. Admit you can't do it. Own it. Stop excusing it. Be what you are so that you can be who you are, who you have been made. Relish it. Here's the beauty. Let me just sum this whole thing up in one phrase. Dead things aren't dead to God. That's it. Whether it's a church, whether it's a person, whether it's a marriage, whether it's your children that they don't know Jesus, they're not dead to God. And then they're not asleep or they're functionally dead. We don't even have to worry about that because when God speaks, things live. That's, that's how that works. And so it gives, he, he brings nothing and he takes nothing and brings something out of it, right? Light out of darkness, life out of death. And so it lets him walk up to Lazarus, who, Lazarus, who he says is asleep, who is dead as far as we're concerned. And he just simply says, Come forth. He looks at a little girl that's dead and they're laughing. Oh, she's asleep. Oh, they're laughing at him. Oh, wake up. Done. It's that simple. And we make it so hard. And so we just say, throw your life on to the cross of Christ and be redeemed and resurrected and woken up. And whatever it is, you know there's something wrong and claim it, own it, and throw it out there and say, help. That's it. It, it, it gets to be that simple. So let's finish. Oh, goodness. I'm sorry. I just saw the clock. I'm not real sorry. <laughs> maybe, maybe a little bit. Here, here's the good news, historically speaking. This was in the first century. Bishop Melito is from Sardis, and you can read his works today from around 186 AD. So somebody repented, and that church turned around, and there's hope. So let's pray together. Number one, ask the Lord if you're alive, if you're dead, or if you're asleep, and wrestle with him. Why do I not leave reading the Bible? Why do I not want to pray? Why do I not feel like I have to repent? I haven't repented in, in three months. I don't even think I've done anything wrong. You need to pray. Ask him to wake me up. Help me to see my blind spots. Number two, pray that we would be a vigilant church, single-minded on following Jesus, not content with just mere activity. Oh, we got a lot of things going on. We got this over here. We don't care if it's not about Jesus. And it's got to be from him and for him. And so, Jamie, I want to do this ministry. I, I don't know. I got to pray. You know, I don't just, 
okay, maybe that's great. I don't know. Don't be mad if it doesn't work out. Let's pray. And pray that we would have authentic worship expressed in a heart for the nations of the church. Let's pray real quick. I'll give you one or two minutes. Um, just right where you are. And then I'll close this in prayer. If you want to keep praying, keep doing that. I'm going to take the Lord's Supper.